Hello, I'm Alexander Rose, the Executive Director of the Long Now Foundation. Our mission at Long Now, which we always hope to achieve with these talks, is to foster long-term thinking in our society. This present episode is all about how art can also be a powerful tool for nurturing long-term thinking. Alicia Eggert is a multidisciplinary artist whose work is focused on our perceptions of language and time. In her art practice, Alicia uses neon, steel, and words to craft sculptures that help us consider our relationship with time more deeply. In her sculpture, This Present Moment, she uses a saying from Stuart Brand's book, The Clock of the Long Now. This present moment used to be the unimaginable future. In this talk, we'll be embarking upon a journey together that will take us to the top of Mount Washington in the Snake Range of the Great Basin of Nevada, where Long Now helped Alicia set up this present moment in September of 2022. As we go through Alicia's talk, I'll be reflecting on my time on the mountain and the experience of working on this project with Alicia and the rest of the Long Now team. I'll also be providing some explanations for the more visual aspects of the talk, like Alicia's sculptures. Before we get to Alicia's talk, a quick note. The Long Now Foundation is entirely supported by donors and members. If you're already a member, thank you. Your support means the world to us. If not, please consider becoming the newest member of Long Now and supporting this series. It only takes a few minutes to set up, and after that, you'll be connected to a whole world of long-term thinking. This podcast is brought to you by Stripe, a company that is working to build the economic infrastructure of the internet. They help people start internet businesses and accept online payments from customers all over the world. This podcast episode is an attempt to capture a very particular visual experience that may not fully translate to audio alone. If you want to get a better sense of the visual art piece, we invite you to experience the sculpture through a short documentary our video team put together about its journey up the mountain, viewable on our Vimeo page, or by watching the full video of this talk on our website. In this present moment, though, let's hear from Alicia Eggert. Thank you so much, Sander, and thank you all for being here. Um, I just want to say that this is such a huge honor. I can't believe I am speaking to some of the people in this room. So thank you. Thank you so much. <laughs> OK, so as a conceptual artist, I have always gravitated to language as a material. I like to think I sculpt words the way that other sculptors work with wood or stone. And the reason I like to use language and give words tangible physical forms in space is because I believe we might be able to understand an idea more fully if we can experience it physically. Not only do I use language to express meaning, I also take advantage of the way that meaning can be embedded in a material and the way that each material I work with has its own duration or lifespan. And I explore everything from cut flowers to welded steel, which is a much more kind of traditional sculpture material. And meaning is also embedded in the processes I choose to use. So for instance, sculpting additively is much different than sculpting subtractively. And in this example, the word future because it's removed from a larger form, it becomes a negative space or a void. The sculpture that Alicia is talking about here is called Unimaginable. At first glance, it appears to just be a large rectangular prism made out of grids of steel rebar. 
Stepping back and taking in the sculpture as a whole reveals the word future, spelled out in the gaps and negative space within the steel. I also love the way that viewing sculpture is a very embodied experience. The work inhabits your physical space, and you can walk around it and see it from multiple perspectives. And your individual perspective as a viewer really matters, actually. Um, it helps to shape the work's meaning. And in this case, it you know, determines the way you see the future. Because my work is text-based, I'm naturally drawn to using the materials and strategies that are often used in commercial signage. So I'm inspired by all kinds of signs, including road signs and like reflective vinyl and the colors that are used in those. And I'm drawn to the material and the medium of neon for all the obvious reasons. You know, nothing compares to that quality of light emitted by electrified gases that are trapped in a you know, glass tube. But neon is also actually very sculptural. The glass tubes are heated and bent over a flame, and they're often bent back on themselves in order to create a specific shape. But my favorite thing about neon signs is animating them and the way it allows me to bring them to life, literally. And the flashing is obviously designed to sort of grab your attention, but I also like to use it to create a specific rhythm in the work. The pace is intentionally slow enough so that you can read the work's messages, but it's also fast enough to hold your attention and keep you present and also make you aware of time's passing. It's similar for me to like the rhythm of breath in mindfulness meditation. My desire to give time a tangible physical form actually started with this project that I did in graduate school. I called it the length of now. And when I did a Google search of that term is when I discovered the Long Now Foundation and became a member. I think it was like 2008. But this project involved cutting pieces of red yarn to really specific lengths and then soaking them in water and then freezing them into the shape of the word now and then taking them out of the freezer and hanging them on a nail on a wall and then allowing them to melt. And I made videos of those nows melting because um, each one was unique, right? And I projected my favorite video onto the wall with a clock in order to juxtapose our lived experience of time with our perception of time and also with that sort of measured mechanical clock time. And this video of now that I chose really highlighted for me how our awareness of time passing is linked to our perception of motion. So there were long moments where the word appears static and change is like pretty imperceptible and time feels slow and really stretched. And then when you begin to perceive the motion, you have this heightened sense of anticipation of something just about to happen. And then in moments of more abrupt change, time seems to speed up, right? And it was interesting also to try to identify at which point the word now was no longer now, but no or nothing at all. My fascination with time uh, probably stems from the fact that my dad was a pastor. So I was raised in church, and I was constantly reminded of the inevitability of my death and the possibility of an eternal afterlife, right? Instead of believing in an afterlife, I ended up becoming an atheist. And I'm much more inclined to believe something the philosopher Ludwig Wittgenstein said, which is that eternal life belongs to those that live in the present. 
And since the definition of eternity is timelessness, what better material is there to create it than clocks? The sculpture that Alicia is talking about here is called Eternity. It's a set of minute and hour hands from 30 identical clocks aligned such that every 12 hours they spell the word Eternity. In a time-lapse video, you can see it come together fairly quickly, but viewing live in person, it's almost completely static. So the, you know, the motion of those minute hands is just on the limits of our perception. And in contrast to that sort of cyclical mechanical time, the reality of our lived experience of time is very linear and finite. And I'm drawn to the ways in which we measure that kind of time in our daily lives, like with the height charts that we keep on the walls of our houses when our children are growing up. So this one on the screen is actually inspired by my own son's height chart. He's eight years old now. And last year, I actually asked him, you know, how tall do you think you're going to be when you grow up? And I asked him to point to that spot on the wall, and I drew a line there, and I wrote, someday. And then the height that he was at that exact moment became now, and then all the moments before are thens. And it's interesting to think about how when we're children, we count time up. But then at a certain point, when we get older, we start to count time down. And time becomes ultimately a reminder of our mortality. Um, and our hearts are like ticking clocks. So this is a sculpture that has an average human lifespan that I called Pulse Machine. And the drum is the heart, and it beats its pulse. And the counter on the wall counts down the number of seconds remaining in the sculpture's lifetime. And it uses those flip-digit numerals from old scoreboards um, that remind me of like the ventricles of a heart. And the sculpture is programmed to die when the counter reaches zero. Uh, it's a little bit like Poe's telltale heart, kind of reminding us of the inevitability of death. And some people have told me it's like a little dark or creepy. Um, <laughs> but I actually believe that thinking about time more deeply and more regularly encourages us to live more meaningfully. You know, it reminds us to focus on more important things instead of more urgent things, you know? And what's more urgent than death? I actually enjoy putting my work in public spaces for this very same reason, to give people more opportunities to think about time deeply in their daily lives. Public art allows people to encounter art in unexpected situations and in the real world and in real time. And that site-specific experience is very, very different from the experience that you have with art in a gallery or a museum, which are spaces that are typically you know, designed to be outside of time. They sort of pluck objects out of the real world, sometimes unethically, and put them in these boxes that often don't even have windows where objects are you know, preserved for posterity. And a lot of my work as an artist is actually driven by my desire to sort of push back against that expectation that society has of artists to make work that will last forever. And the sense of place afforded by a specific site, I think, provides context for um, the work's message, right? So, and not just in like a static or a singular way, the work and its meaning are impacted by continuous changes in the environment, in the light and the atmospheric conditions. 
The sense of timelessness implied by this word forever is contrasted by, you know, our observable time in the landscape. And it was very much inspired by that phrase, on a clear day, you can see forever, right? But I love the way that when fog rolls in, it literally erases everything in sight, you know? And I love that the way our perception of space changes also sort of affects the way we perceive time. The sounds you're hearing now are from an exhibition of Alicia sculpture, On a Clear Day You Can See Forever, which was on Dudley Island in Maine, the easternmost point of the continental United States. The experience of viewing the sculpture is one that requires patience. Over the course of minutes or hours, the word forever, mounted on a steel scaffolding, becomes visible through the Atlantic fog. All the while, you hear the ambient noise of the island, crashing waves, birds, and ones. And this way of experiencing art, like out in the real world, is not only visual, uh, it engages all of our senses. So in this case, the appearance and disappearance of this word in the fog is coupled with those crashing waves and the birds flying by sometimes and those repetitive blaring foghorns. So one of the wonderful things for me about um, light as a medium is the way that it illuminates everything around it, right? So when I place a neon sign in a specific environment, not only does the site impact the work, but the work also impacts the site. And it casts its light and the color like, on everything it can touch. And in the same way that turning one little word on and off in a sentence can dramatically change what that sentence is communicating, installing the same sign in a very different place can also completely change the way that it's interpreted. So being on a remote island like in the Mediterranean is very different from being on the island of Manhattan. So. I read books for inspiration. I specifically look for books that are written from the perspective of physics or philosophy about the way we understand time. And it was just very natural for me to read Stewart's book, The Clock of the Long Now, when I became a member of the Long Now Foundation. That book, The Clock of the Long Now, was written by Long Now co-founder Stuart Brand from Zero 1999. It's a collection of essays about the practical use and cultivation of long-term thinking. The quote that inspired this present moment comes from an exchange of epigrams between the poet Gary Snyder and Stuart. But the way that I work is when I'm reading, I like have my notebook nearby and I write down the quotes or the ideas that really inspire me. And I was captivated by this quote, but I sort of put those away and put them to the side. And then it's usually many years later when I'm brainstorming ideas for new work or creating new work for an exhibition that I go back through old sketchbooks and try to look for something that really jumps out to me in that moment and feels relevant at that time. So it was actually many, many years later, after I read The Clock of Long Now, 
that I uh, went back through old sketchbooks as I was preparing for an exhibition. And I came across the quote, and I started to brainstorm ways I could illuminate it and animate it. And in order to ask for Stuart's permission to use it, I decided to tweet this rendering at him. And obviously, it's a very initial rendering. The sign ended up looking nothing like this. It was my first attempt at how, how, what it would look like. But I want to pause real quick at this point in the story and talk about the relationship between possibility and reality. Because another one of Long Now's co-founders, Brian Eno, once said that humans are capable of a unique trick, creating realities by first imagining them. And I really believe this to be true, actually. I also believe that our sense of possibility is directly correlated to our conception of time. So the more expansively we think about the here and now, the larger our sense of possibility. And I'm also interested in the transformation of possibility into reality. When does it switch from you know, only being possible to actually being real? So at this time, when I tweeted at Stuart, you know, the sign was still just in the realm of possibility. And I could imagine it, but it was very possible that he would say no or he would just ignore me altogether, right? <laughs> but if you know Stuart, you probably know that I didn't even need to ask for his blessing because he gives it freely. So as you can see here, he ended up tweeting back at me just a few minutes later, literally, and he said, sure. <laughs> <laughs> So this is the first edition of this present moment that I made for an exhibition I had in Portugal in 2019. And as you can see, the design changed dramatically from my initial rendering. Because at some point, I realized I could turn off those two words, present and unimaginable, and I could reveal another kind of complete statement. This moment used to be the future. And when I realized that, I knew I had to align all the text on the left-hand side so that when those words disappeared, there wasn't like a gaping hole, right, in the design. And the color pink was also a very deliberate choice. I take color very seriously. And I chose pink at that time in 2019 because of the ripple effects that the Me Too movement was having on the world. I personally was trying to imagine what the world would look like if it was more equitable and more safer for women and girls. And I also wanted to imagine, you know, a future where the color pink wasn't always just associated with women and girls. And it's crazy to think back on this time because here we are three years later, I never could have imagined that we'd be living in a post-row world, right? But after sharing that uh, finished work with Stuart, again on Twitter, <laughs> I found out that this quote actually is co-authored with Stuart's friend and poet Gary Snyder, who wrote this epigram and shared it with Stuart, inspiring him to write the quote that inspired me. So I really love this backstory, and it's beautiful for me to see how this sentiment has evolved over time and how I am now a part of that evolution. But I make three editions of each neon sign uh, so that I can share them with more people in the world and actually put them more places in the world. Later that same year, I made a second edition that ended up being acquired by the Smithsonian's Renwick Gallery. At around that same time, I first came across this present moment in one of those beautiful bits of online serendipity. And after looking more into Alicia's work as an artist, I got into contact with her. 
We started to talk about how Alicia brings her sculptures out to different natural locations to give them more meaningful context, and she asked if there was a site like that for this piece. It quickly occurred to us that the perfect location to bring the sign would be a property long now purchased over 20 years ago as a potential clock site in the Snake Range of Nevada. That site has a deep connection with long-term thinking. It's home to bristlecone pine trees, which are some of the longest-lived trees on Earth. Some of the bristlecones in the range have lived over 5,000 years, a seemingly unimaginable span for a living thing. That process of actually imagining what we were about to do and then making it a reality took about a year. And it involved making a third edition of the neon sign with my studio assistant, Jess Green, in my studio in Dallas, Texas. And I made this sign specifically for this opportunity, the, the scale of it and also the way that it's constructed in modular components so that it can easily assemble and disassemble. So here you can see it in the back of a moving truck and the sign structure is made of steel, right? And all of the glass components are stored in that wood crate. And I just want to take a second to acknowledge the fact that we used glass for this specific project because it's kind of insane. <laughs> um, and the most insane part about it is that I didn't make any backups. <laughs> so we only had one piece of glass for each part of the sign. And if any of them broke along the way, we would have been screwed. But we probably would have found ways of making it still happen. But that materiality of glass was actually a really important part of this project for me because I think it really speaks to that fragility of like possibility reality relationships, right? And it's interesting to think about when the culmination of an idea draws nearer and we could, we've been planning for a year and we can now really imagine what it's going to look like on this mountaintop. But the closer we got to actually making that a reality, the more fragile that sense of possibility actually became because one broken letter could have like totally made it potentially impossible. And one of the most significant challenges, as you can see here, was getting the glass up this mountain safely up to 11,000 feet. It's so interesting to learn about the bristlecone pines and the fact that they actually thrive in these really extreme conditions that you can only find at these, you know, really high elevations. So it was really interesting to try to make that journey up to this place where they live. The road up to the plateau on Mount Washington, where we ended up placing this present moment, can be a difficult one. Full of extremely tight switchbacks, it's over a century old and was originally made to help transport silver down from one of the highest working mines in Nevada. In my time driving it, I've had to navigate hail, snow, fires, and quite a few flat tires. Once we got to the build site, we had to deal with the physical and mental effects of working at high elevation. And if you've never built a large-scale structure at 11,000 feet, you will feel it. Trust me. And of course, we had to do all these crazy switchbacks, and the road was dirt, and there was all these huge ruts. And every time we went over a bump, I was freaking out inside. <laughs> but thankfully, I was in really good hands. And I also had like a whole team of people who were so equipped and like fully, you know, acquainted with installing art projects in really extreme environments. So we arrived at the mountaintop around noon, and after lunch, we immediately got to work assembling the sign structure. And our goal was to have everything set up by sunset. 
Um, and this video for me really shows how fast that afternoon seemed to go by. And I think it's kind of funny because it might be the shortest term project the Long Now Foundation has ever done. <laughs> As you can see, we did manage to get the sign up and working right before the sunset. And I'm so thankful we did. Another artist and also a Long Now Research Fellow, Jonathan Keats, something that he said about this particular moment was how it allowed us to witness the simultaneity of so many different timescales, right? The flashing on and off of those words every three seconds, coupled with the passing of the clouds overhead, gathering and parting, and then the change of the light as the sun set over the course of about an hour. All of those things were then juxtaposed with the lifespans, the 5,000-year-old trees that were surrounding us, right? So it was quite a magical experience. But one thing, actually, that did not go according to plan um, was that the electronic flasher that I typically use to change the states of those signs every three seconds actually didn't work, and we couldn't figure out why. We thought it had something to do with the electricity coming out of the generator and not jiving with it. We couldn't figure it out. So ultimately, I had to plug and unplug these different sections of the neon sign at this power strip. And you can see in this video how determined I was to keep that rhythm really consistent. For me, it's so, so, so important that each state of the sign lasts three seconds, not four, not two, three seconds, right? And that it repeats over and over and over again, creating that really sort of meditative experience. So when you look at this video, uh, imagine me off to the right-hand side of the scene, counting one Mississippi, two Mississippi, three Mississippi. That sort of meditative and very mechanical rhythm of the sign became kind of like a ticking clock, you know? And that was juxtaposed with our own lived experiences of time and the length of our own human lifespans. So people really love to photograph the sign when it's illuminated, of course, right? Um, but that third state where all the words turn off for three seconds is actually really important for me because from my point of view, it actually returns our attention to the landscape. And this was especially crucial here in this really epic landscape, right? The Basin and Range province, I actually learned, is home to some of the highest mountain peaks in the contiguous United States. And that elevated perspective is also an important conceptual component of this project. Because I like to think that shift in perspective, that bird's eye view that we get from a mountaintop, as being really similar to that broader perspective of time right? Seeing that longer now. Yet another time scale we can experience when we look out at that landscape is the geological time scale and the time it takes for geological forces to stretch the Earth's crust and to form a mountain. As the sun set, the stars began to appear. And I don't know why, but for some reason, this was very unexpected. You know, when you think about putting an Ian sign on the mountain, you think about 
like the sunset, but I never could have imagined that the Milky Way, the band of the Milky Way, would literally be right behind it. It was beautiful. And this revealed a whole other timescale, that of galaxies. And I didn't actually know until the other day that our galaxy is spinning. Did you know that? <laughs> and that it takes about 240 million years to complete one rotation. So here in this one image, we have two vastly different timescales, right? A present moment that lasts, depending on how you think of it, three seconds or nine seconds, and one that lasts 240 million years. So what I've always loved about this quote is the way that we can each relate to it like on a very individual level. And when we think about this present moment and how it was once unimaginable, we can think about our current relationships or the kind of current state of our career. But I also love how it can uh, also kind of speak to a more universal level and things that are going on in the world that you know, affect all of us. I like to think about how if this present moment was once unimaginable, how it naturally makes you wonder and want to try to imagine, you know, what the future will hold. So I personally am trying to imagine a future of gender equality, of equal pay, right, and equal access to abortions. Wouldn't that be something? <laughs> but... <laughs> <laughs> but I wonder what you are all imagining for the future. I think in moments like this, which we had sort of gazing out at the world from a mountaintop, or you could have gazing up at the stars at night, or that feeling you get when you're standing in front of a work of art that like really, really moves you, that broader perspective that you get, that bird's eye view, or that feeling of awe, maybe, can give you a new way of understanding the world, right? It can give you that shift in perspective and it can help you see the bigger here and the longer now. And the roles that we play in it, both individually and also collectively. And I think that that shift in perspective can actually help us imagine otherwise unimaginable futures. And this was definitely an unimaginable future for me at some point being able to stand beside Stuart Brand and gaze up at this sign that I made, illuminating his words. I'm really grateful for this experience. I'm also really grateful to all of these people who participated in this project, some of whom are not even pictured here. But thank you all for helping make this moment a reality. <laughs> This was, it was such an amazing project to happen over so many years and then the culmination moment uh, of the actual trip. I'm curious as, I mean, you've done many projects in many remote places and wh where does this fit in the scale of the things that you have done like that? This was definitely a first for me in many ways in terms of like the actual elevation, um, but it's crazy that Literally only two weeks later, I took a neon sign up Kilimanjaro. <laughs> so it was almost like a sort of a trial run for that other project, which was crazy because this was like a lifelong goal. And then I immediately had to be like, okay, great, that went really well. Now I'm on to this next thing. 
Um, but yeah, I think that the, the people that came together to make it happen, like Gary with his truck and Trey and Scout and all the other people who were in the caravan up the mountain. I didn't mention that Gary's truck actually broke down along the way too. And we like held this thing together. I don't even know what it was, but it, we held it together with zip ties. Maybe I'm not sure. <laughs> Um, but all those people that were able to come together and make it possible were definitely like a, I think it's a testament to the organization, you know, and the types of people that it attracts. It was just like a magical experience to be a part of that. Um, I see it very much as a collaboration. Our goal with the, um, you know, doing something like this fellowship program is to do things that only, only we could do yeah. with a collaboration like this, where you know, I, you know, very few people have a mountaintop with bristlecone pines on it, and uh, very few people ha are doing the kind of work that you're doing. And so the idea that it could come together and be that unique, and you know, we don't want to reproduce other people's fellowship programs. You want to do something that can be uh, only done in this way. So that, I think mm -hmm. this was a kind of a perfect example of that. Um, but I'd love to talk a little bit about your process. You're a conceptual artist and you work with all kinds of artisans and other people to create a lot of this stuff. Um, mm -hmm. And it's done through a design process, but you're, you don't build everything. Correct. Um, and so I'd love to hear you just talk a little bit about that. Yeah, for sure. So um, as a conceptual artist, I definitely love participating in the physical process and doing whatever it actually makes sense for me to do. In this case, um, my assistant Jess and I welded the steel structure and did all of that metal fabrication. Um, and of course the design that led to that. Um, but I do not bend glass. I am not a neon bender. Um, and that's something that at a certain point in my career, it was actually in graduate school. I went to Alfred University for my MFA and they have a neon uh, program within the art school. And I, I was in grad school for two years and I saw that class and I was like, there is no way I'm going to master that craft in this short amount of time, especially with the things that I want to do with the medium. So if I wanted to use it almost like as a, a drawing tool, then maybe it would have made more sense. But because I knew I wanted to create really specific things like letter forms, it made more sense for me to actually call upon people who are experts in that craft. And one of those is actually here in this audience. <laughs> Ames, who's here, <laughs> is a neon vendor here in San Francisco. And Ames has helped me with um, a neon sign I had at the Exploratorium about a year ago, but Ames is also going to help with a letter that broke that I discovered today. Um, broke at some point either in the deinstallation or transportation from the Fort Mason back to storage. So, um, so yeah, for me, it's actually, um, it's, it makes the process more enjoyable for me to not be only doing it by myself because um, I actually feel like that collaboration with other artists and experts in their fields kind of makes the, the project more successful in the end, but it also makes the process sort of like, it makes that final moment something that you can celebrate with like a whole group of people and not just as like sort of this individual. Um, and I feel like it's something that I'm really trying to, um, 
I think in the art world specifically, we're all used to in music or in film, there's always like credits where everyone who participated in that project is acknowledged. But for some reason in the art world, it's still, we still have this idea that there's this like one sole creative genius behind everything, which is definitely hardly ever the case anymore. So um, it's something I'd like to, to see change, I think. Yeah, I, mean, I have to say, you know, as we were doing this and then you know, all the effort and all the logistics of getting this to the top of the mountain and not breaking it and putting it up and, and you know, it's a set of words, but I think maybe all of you in the room got a sense of that when we saw this video. It's like, it is so much more than a few words. The moment that it was like, I mean, I was crying when it oh. happened. And, uh, and watching the video, I was like crying again. So oh. it was, uh, it's like, it's, uh, it's, it's interesting how, how it can be so simple and so powerful at the same time, and it's a credit to the thought that you put into it. Um, okay. I think you, you also told me that sometimes when you go, tra you've traveled with some of these signs that they've broken, and then you have to find a local artisan to fix them? Yeah, yeah. So the you are on an island sign, I think, is the most well-traveled uh, piece that I've made. Um, it was actually made in collaboration with um, a former partner named Mike Fleming. One of our friends at some point was like, you know what, I can't believe you made this work. You were on an island, you get to go to all these islands. Like, I should make something that says you are on a resort. <laughs> but we d we have, we, we've gotten the opportunity to go to a lot of places because of that sign. And actually there's like a permanent version of it on the rooftop of a building in St. Petersburg, Russia, of all places, because it turns out St. Petersburg is a series of islands, who knew? What's interesting is, so one of the coolest locations we took You Are On An Island was Malta for the Malta Arts Festival, I think in 2013. And um, it was there that, like, as I'm putting one of the letters up on the sign, I, I think I just, like, did, I don't know, I tweaked something a little weird. I torqued the glass in a way that it didn't like and just like snapped it. And, um, and of course, again, there were no backups. So immediately we were like, okay, so who does neon in Malta, right? <laughs> <laughs> and it turns out there was one neon shop um, in the country uh, and it was run by a family of three generations, a grandfather, a father, and a son that had been doing it for I don't know how long, you know, probably close to how long the medium has even been around. Um, and so we got to go there, you know, bring the broken letter to them so they could use it to make a pattern and make a new one. And um, it was just the coolest experience to meet them and to see their shop. And then um, I like literally every single neon person I meet is, is so are there some of the nicest people on the planet. So um, it's allowed me to meet some great people for sure. So James Holm, who's actually, who's uh, our web designer for long now and was on this trip and was very, uh, was helping along the way. He's watching online tonight. Um, but he's asking um, how, you mentioned how critical the three seconds is. Uh, can you say a little bit more about why? Well, I really felt like when I, uh, I animate things in Photoshop and I use that sort of create a frame animation tool. Um, and so I try out different timings. Um, and it's really about like, I try to read it as if I've never seen the thing before, like 
this present moment used to be the unimaginable future. And I try to see like, oh, did it turn off too soon before I got you know, through the whole thing? So for me, it was really about creating enough time for someone to read it, um, but then not lingering too long for them to be like, and, you know, attention <laughs> is lost. Um, so that, like, then almost as soon as they're done reading it, you know, it switches. So it's a lot of play, and I think for this specific sign, I was kind of always between, like, two and a half and three seconds, and I felt like it was better to give people a little more time than to, you know, have not as much. Um, so yeah, that, that's the gist of it, I guess. Nice. Yeah. Do we have a question? Lizbeth, and a shout out to Texas. I moved here from Dallas seven years ago. So, um, on time and just think the last couple of years, I wondered as you know, an artist, just you know, what you experienced and how you went inside and any expression during the last two years. We've really been oh. in different spaces. So I made this present moment in 2019, right? When I was in Portugal, I, I think my, my exhibition opening there was in May of 2019. And then I came back to the United States and made the second edition at the end of 2019, maybe September, October. And then, um, and then of course, 2020 happened and everything shut down. And I didn't actually make art at all um, during the lockdown. Um, I live in a part of Texas where everyone has lawns and I had a lawn. So I, my quarantine project was ripping out all my grass and planting like a xeriscape yard. And it was amazing uh, to spend time just like with my hands in the dirt. Um, but uh, in 2021, I had an exhibition opening in Dallas and that was when I made that steel sculpture with the word future removed. Um, so that, I actually titled The Unimaginable Future, still inspired by Stuart's quote, but it was very much related to my experience during the pandemic, the way that, you know, my calendar was so full and then everything was just wiped, like a slate, clean, right? Um, so actually just like cutting those letters out of the steel. Um, and I didn't talk about this in the presentation, but. That sculpture is made out of rebar, which, you know, is used to cast different like architectural or infrastructural elements in concrete. And the larger sculpture that creates that sort of sense of perspective is actually tied together with wire the same way that they tie um, those kinds of architectural elements together before they cast them. But um, ultimately, like the future is a void <laughs> and this whole sculpture is tied together in such a way that like something like is, was supposed to become of it and then didn't. Um, so that was sort of my response to, to that time. Yeah. Uh, just a bibliographic note. Um, it, well, it'll probably be Gary Schneider's last book of poetry. The title of the book is This Present Moment because uh, it really got to him, apparently. And I have to say that the event of that line in the book becoming a piece of art that is worth <laughs> climbing to the top of the mountain to show it against a landscape, I would say it was pretty unimaginable. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you for that moment. Oh, thank you. <laughs>
<laughs> do you have a shot of the Kilimanjaro thing? Oh, I think they, I do. So it was kind of, you had to use a different technology than neon in order to hike it all the way up. True. To- I used LED neon for this one. And this is just an iPhone shot. So um, the, the shots with a you know, DSLR camera will get more of the stars and stuff like that. But um, it was a seven-day climb. So we set up the sign at every camp along the way. Um, what was the highest elevation you got to? The 4,600. Meters. Meters. Right. Sorry, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. And what's yeah. your next project going to be? Uh, well, I really hope to do more with this. So this, this uh, is inspired by a friend of mine, Satya Brata Dam is his name. And Satya is... Uh, sort of like a renowned mountain climber. He's climbed all the world's tallest mountains, including Everest, like 12 times or something. Um, But I asked him, like, what kind of state of mind do you have to be to climb a mountain like that? And he said, like, you have to be the mountain. You can't see it as an obstacle. So so that's what inspired this. And we hope to... And, you know, that inspired me to think about environmental personhood, um, which is, you know, has, has been a way of thinking for indigenous peoples forever, right? To think about elements in the landscape as our kin. But it's something that is kind of gaining traction right now. And recently the, um, the country of New Zealand declared a mountain a person, a legal person, right? And these things are happening more and more. Um, and so I like to think about um, uh, that sense of personhood of when you're on this mountain. So we hope to take this to more mountains, long story short. <laughs> I, I very much like a mountain being a person than a corporation, which is what we have. <laughs> exactly, um, right? <laughs> I want to thank you so much. Thank this you, thank you so much. It's been so amazing. Thank, thank you, you very much. Before you go, we would like to make a small ask of you as a listener. If you like our podcast, please tell your friends about it. We rely nearly entirely on word of mouth to grow our audience. And so anytime you rate or leave a review of the podcast or tell a friend about an episode that you've been thinking about, it helps us nurture this long-term thinking community. If you'd like to learn more about our projects, take a deeper dive into our ideas, watch the talks online, or become a member, go to longnow.org. You'll also find the full audio and video of Alicia Eggert's talk, as well as the short documentary we made about the journey. As always, we'd like to thank our speakers, our listeners, our sponsors, and our members. This work would not be possible without you. Today's music comes from Jason Wool, as well as Brian Eno's January 07-03 Bell Studies for the Clock of the Long Now. Big thanks to our production team, Danielle Engelman, Justin Oliphant, Andrew Warner, Jacob Cooperman, Shannon Breen, Casey Kripe, and the entire Long Now staff who make each of these conversations possible. We'd also like to thank everyone who's on Mount Washington with us helping with the build for this present moment. We look forward to talking with you next time, and until then, keep moving patiently, responsibly, and exploring the long view. Thank you.